All right. See you, Dawson. Sweet. All right, if you have a Bible this morning, you can take it out to Acts chapter 2. And so, fair warning, we're starting later than I usually start. This could be two sermons today. Um, I'm going to try to get after it in one Sunday. I'm going to go faster than typical, and we may cut out the last song. Okay, there. That's all my cards on the table. You have them up front. All right, don't put your phones in front of you to get distracted because you've got to stay with us as we go through Acts chapter 2 this morning. Two weeks ago, we started this series on gospel community. And our goal is this, that through this series... As a local church family, we would better understand what it is to be God's people gathered together for his purposes. And so I get really reluctant to use the word church um, because I think in our modern context, church has become this thing or a space and facility. So we're using the phrase gospel community. And really, I believe that is just a local gathering of God's people. And my honest truth is, and, and hope for this, is that, that we would better understand what gospel community is, and we would better reflect and make strides to represent what a biblical gospel community looks like as a people together. So we've looked at things like Scripture being important before, and what we've seen is that God faithfully and He continually draws people to Himself for His purposes. Right, that, that's what a gospel community is. People drawn to God, to himself, for his purposes, and ultimately for their good uh, as well. That's what gospel community is. People being drawn together, again, for God's purposes and for their good. Right? That they would bring him glory and be radically committed to the gospel and to the lives of those around. That's, that's the hope in gospel community. Last week we looked at that gospel community has a distinguishing mark, and that's gospel discipleship. You're going to see a theme here, right? The word gospel is going to be constantly mentioned. Right? So gospel discipleship has to be an element of gospel community, meaning that the people within gospel community were actually desiring to grow, to work at becoming more like Christ, and to see that happening in other people. That's gospel discipleship. If these things are not happening, if discipleship is not happening within gospel community, it's merely become just a social gathering or some sort of community we're finding ourselves in to make ourselves feel better. Right? Discipleship is the growth to both understand who Christ is and a willingness to submit in who Jesus calls us to be. So gospel community has to have gospel discipleship. If not, again, it's no different than any other community of people gathering together for some common purpose. This is what makes it different, gospel discipleship. Over this week and the following few weeks, we're going to talk about uh, today gospel teaching and prayer, what it means to worship together, what it means to have gospel hospitality, and then what it means to live then in light of the gospel as a gospel community. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are the topics we're going to go after the next few weeks, okay? If you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 2 this morning, a fairly familiar passage, verses 42 to 47. This is God's word. 
says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, as we um, just seek to understand more of your word this morning and then to hopefully by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit apply the word to our lives. I just pray for wisdom that we would each individually know how with wisdom to apply what your word says today. Specifically on the topics of understanding your word and prayer. God, would you accomplish these things so that we may better strive after you in obedience, that we may live for your glory, and that you would be honored. In your name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever tried to imitate somebody? Like either nice and lovingly in a, in a positive way or just joking around? Right? I, I can remember in college, this is how bored you get in college, right? My college roommate and I, if you've met my friend Eric, He's come to visit before. Um, at night, trying to do homework in our dorm room, we would just try to recreate different accents, right? And you, in your own mind, like you could do Scottish or English or whatever, and you think you sound spot on, like in your head, right? But the reality is, a good roommate tells you you sound like an idiot. But, and that, we would fill a lot of our nights like that. We would try to imitate what we thought it would sound like to live in a different country and have a different accent, right? It wasn't always successful, but it was fun, at least for us. And the older I get, I wonder, with my dad, if I naturally begin to imitate him more and more, right? There's some subconscious level taking place, probably. Um, But how I think, how I act, how I filter through situations, my personality, even how I look, do I begin to take on more and more of my dad? Am I I imitating him more ways? I I don't know, but I think I am. See, imitation happens, I think, in our lives, at a sincere level anyway, when we see someone displaying a quality or trait that we think is valuable. So I think sincere imitation happens when we see something in somebody else's life and we say, man, I think that's valuable or admirable or it's worth possessing ourselves. And then we, be, we begin to kind of to morph into that. Take on that trait. We see that, that characteristic. Maybe it's discipline in somebody's life. Okay, what, that, that, they have a very discipline structure. They, they have a kind of a go-get attitude and they have their priorities. I wonder what their life is like that helps them do that. And we begin to kind of process through and we think about those things. Right? We, we seek to make those parts part of our own lives. Right? Uh, this is what's happening here in Acts 2. It's, it's, we're hoping that in examining this passage of the first century church, right, right out of the gate, right out of birth, that we will look, I hope, and better imitate what it means to be God's people. We want to, to look at them and understand the things they're doing, asking how can that be applied in our lives if we think it's valuable, 
And so here in Acts 2, we see a description of the first century church. And we have to ask the question then, what are they doing? And what should be noted in this? And very simply this morning, I just really want to primarily look at the very first verse, verse 42. And it said again, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The NASB says it this way, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And I like that, actually. They were continually devoting themselves. Right? The ESV makes it sound past tense. They devoted themselves. They made it a commitment. They just decided they're going to do it. But the NASB says, look, and they were continually devoting themselves. An active, ongoing. See, the first gospel communities, the first local gathering of God's people, they were different than the world around them. They were devoted and committed to something very different than what culture was around them. Right? First, they were committed to following Christ. At this time, according to Acts, Jesus had left. He's returned to glory, to his heavenly home. And we, we, what we see here are committed followers, people committed to Jesus and his message. Now, Acts 2 told us what? They were devoted themselves to something. What was it? What did it say? They devoted themselves to what? The first phrase. The apostles' teaching. Thank you. We should ask ourselves, what is that? What is the apostles' teaching? It's God's word. Potentially. What else? You said something. Gospel? They were teaching the gospel. Yes, they were teaching Jesus. They were teaching what it looks like to follow, to honor, and to pursue and grow in Christ. They, they were teaching those things. The apostles, the, when we say the apostles, what we mean is the primary ones who were spending the most time with Jesus, right? He had how many disciples? Twelve. At this point, there's eleven. Okay, Judas is, is, has left the fold. Right, so the apostles, it's talking really about that group, right? Later on, Paul will kind of be kind of grafted into that group as well. But when they say they're committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, they really mean the primary teaching role that the the 11 disciples were taking on, the ministry of Jesus continuing after he left earth. See, if you were to look back just a few minutes earlier in in Acts 2, what you'll find is is Peter's sermon, his first sermon. And he really was giving the good news of the gospel. See, this is what was being taught, right? Gospel community has the distinguishing mark of gospel preaching or teaching. See, here and throughout the entire New Testament, we find the early church committed to hearing the word of God taught, having instruction given, and clarity provided to what it means to follow after Jesus, That's what you're going to read throughout the New Testament, primarily. I'll say those things again. You're going to hear God, the Word of God being taught, the Gospel as well. You'll see instruction being given of what it means to live and follow after Jesus with clarity provided in what that looks like. But consider this statement. The people of God had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The goal of the apostles was not to teach their own slant, 
to give political advice or to help people lose like 15 pounds, right, right after the new year. That was not the apostles' teaching. No, the apostles' teaching was committed to helping people understand the truth of Jesus, the hope of the gospel, and the call to follow Christ in all of life. And as I thought about this statement, like devoted to the apostles' teaching, I, w- I was reminded that they're not reading out of the Bible. Like this, this is not exi- existing. Right, the first five books probably are, are then, at this point, understood. They're passed down. Certainly, oral tradition is passed down. But they're primarily teaching out of their understanding, right, oral tradition, and then Christ's teachings. See, they were teaching primarily what they knew, what they observed, what they understood that Jesus had told them, what he personally had shown them, and what they observed, it's amazing. The apostles' teaching was firsthand. They were part of this new way of life that was not bound up in a ritualistic system or a pattern of life devoid of thought. No, the call of the gospel and the apostles' teaching was rooted in deep thinking. It was rooted in understanding that, look, if you're going to make the commitment to follow Jesus, there is a cost that comes with it. Therefore, consider before you sign up. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself. So consider that. Like, Jesus calls us to think about what it means to follow Jesus before we begin to follow Jesus. And he asks us to wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus while we follow Jesus. This is what's happening with the apostles' teaching. See, gospel community is rooted in gospel teaching and preaching. Gospel teaching has a clear focal point. What is it? The gospel. If Jesus was God's son, if he did indeed die on the cross for our sins, being that perfect substitutionary lamb, and if he did indeed rise again, then everything is impacted. All of life, your work, your play, your family, everything. And if we're giving our lives to Christ and he is what we claim him to be, if you claim to be a Christian today, this is what you're claiming him to be. You're claiming Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life. We feel really comfortable with the the Savior piece, kind of that that life ring being tossed to us. We feel less comfortable with with, with the Lord piece. But look, for, for the follower of Jesus, when we come to him, we're saying, look, we need you because we cannot do this thing called life without you. Have your way in me. And, that, and that's a lifelong process. And often we, we think we're kind of chugging along, and God says, hey, don't forget this piece of your life. And you're saying, really? That piece? Because <laughs> I like that piece just the way it is. God's saying, yep, everything. That's the Lord part of your life. See, the gospel reaches its hand into every facet, every fiber. And, and this is what we're observing here in Acts 2. A devotion, a commitment to the teaching of the apostles who were rooted in the person and teaching of Jesus and took it upon their lives to be changed by that gospel. We see the people here were devoted to the fellowship, right? Gospel community, they were devoted to it, committed to it, and to the people of it. 
to the breaking of bread, right? Meals and, and likely the Lord's Supper as well. Devoted to prayer, both individually and corporately, likely in the temple. They were selling things, helping each other out as there was need. They were spending time together in each other's homes. All the while, just praising the Lord that he would find his grace to allow them to do that. And out of this life grew a devotion to sitting under godly teaching. You see, God worked in mighty ways through the teaching of the gospel. See, good, godly, and biblical doctrine and good, godly instruction leads to something. See, good doctrine, good theology, good teaching, and good devotion and good instruction leads to something. How did the early church grow? Both numerically and in its depth through the teaching of God's word. Godly teaching leads to growth. Again, yes, there's a numerical factor in that, but there's a depth factor here, a, a maturity factor here. If you look at Acts earlier, uh, Acts 2.41, just one verse back to where we started. It says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter preaches, people come to Jesus, baptism happens, right? An an outwardly acceptance, an outwardly confession of faith. 3,000 people come to Christ. Peter didn't go to seminary, right? Peter preached the gospel. You can read it. His sermon's right there next to 3,000 thousand people so I'm, I'm sure the apostles are encouraged by now there's strength in numbers they may not feel as, as alone as it is like the faithful 11 and the other there are some other disciples there too but what there are they're encouraged because man god's word is changing people the gospel and the hope is changing lives i believe that the apostles have a deep conviction that a life through christ again is the best way to live your life Right now, like I don't care what Joel Osteen's book tells me about my best life now, right? A life with Christ, I can write my own book, is with Christ the best way to live your life. And my book just concluded, it's done, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm confident, church, the apostles were excited that people's lives were coming to Christ, both for eternity, but for that very moment. And yes, it grows. Acts 4, 4 But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's after Peter and and John are teaching and preaching. It's it's growing now. 2,000 more people coming to Christ out of his word being declared, the gospel moving forward. Later on, Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. As the, the gospel gets declared and taught and instruction is given, there's growth, there's growth, there's growth, there's growth. And one can try to make the case, well, look, this is new, it's fresh. Look, I'm going to make the case that our culture today, the gospel is about as new and fresh as it would have been to a first century belief system. So please don't believe that. Like, oh, that was then, this is now. See, as the gospel teaching went forward to people, lives were changed. Consider much of the New Testament writings given by Paul. Right? As he writes these letters to established churches, right, gospel communities, he's given instruction. He's guiding them. He's pressing them. 
He's encouraging them to pursue Christ. He's making sure that false doctrine does not creep in. Right? There's often a, a conflict of return to law living versus grace living. And to consider their lives and what best exemplifies Christ in their homes, their marriages, their work, and their relationship. Paul writes most of the New Testament addressing those things. Right? What was God at work within personal lives? How was he at action? How was he strengthening, challenging? How was he lovingly desiring people to follow him? All of that is gospel teaching. All of that is, is how the gospel works into every facet of your life. And what you now have is actually this. It's, it's the Bible, right? It's the canon, God's word. Read it. It's Paul, often New Testament, Paul teaching with others, Peter, John, Luke. And it's written from what? A perspective of once the gospel takes root, it's not just check it off and be done, but let it continue to take root in you. We talk about this in our men's group Monday morning, that if all of the scripture is about Jesus, then in Exodus, where's Jesus? Where is he in that? Where is he in the the passage we're working through? Sometimes it's just a foreshadowing. Sometimes it's, it's a comparison, right? Like this current section we're in is kind of the Israelites escaping out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. Well, where is Jesus in that? Man, well, Jesus is the one who provides that dry ground for us to walk through, to be restored to our Heavenly Father, to, to leave this, the captivity of sin, i.e. Egypt, and to pursue after Christ. He's in all of the scriptures, church. Within gospel community must exist gospel teaching. Think about this. It's just logical, right? If gospel discipleship is to happen, how can that happen without gospel teaching? Without God's word being pressed into your life and into my life, how does discipleship, right, looking more like followers of Jesus and looking more like Christ each day, how does that happen if we don't have the gospel teaching going forward? See, the desire to grow in our relationship and our understanding of Jesus, it cannot take place if the scriptures are not being taught and if we are not submitting ourselves to its instruction as it leads us. If we leave these things out, gospel discipleship, gospel teaching, right, then I think what can happen is that we, like all humanity, will simply look to specific things as formulaic so that we can just kind of walk out steps, check boxes off, and call our Christ-likeness okay. Right? I, I think if we just kind of leave things like that, we don't have that constant talk of, of just gospel discipleship, and how, how is Jesus working in your life today? Like, how is, God, how is God working in your life? What is he pointing out in you that, that's not given over to him yet? Right. And, and, and Kim's had this conversation with people before where it's, well, this is an area that it seems like I'm always going to struggle with. Well, that doesn't have to happen. Um. Like there, there's freedom that comes in Christ and there's freedom that he gives. And, and it may be a long journey to get that freedom, but you don't have to live in what would really be called just slavery. That's, that's gospel teaching. That, that's speaking the truth of the gospel into someone's real situation. So don't think when you hear gospel teaching that I mean just specifically like on a Sunday morning gospel preaching that that's an important part. 
Look, the first century church grew most under gospel teaching. So this is an important piece of it. But I'm also talking about just life into life. Right? I'm talking about how do we impart and impact Scripture into each other's lives. That's also gospel teaching. And when those things stop happening, then gospel growth will not take place. And all this, all of this has to be covered in gospel prayer. As noted earlier in Acts 2, right, the early church was committed to prayer. And what do I mean by gospel prayer? I put gospel there just, again, to keep our hearts orienting toward Jesus. Okay. But they were committed to prayer. They were committed to the apostles' teaching, the worship, the meals, Lord's Supper, and each other. Right? We don't get a sense that these are ranked in importance as far as like, oh, they ate meals, but prayer was down here. No, no, we, we believe that prayer was certainly important. And their commitment level seems to be deep here. They were deeply committed to these things. Right, well, what is prayer? And you're smart, and if you've been around the church family for a while, you may have kind of an idea, but just so we're all on the same page, a simple definition, prayer is, is talking to God. It's a simple definition of it. It's a direct address to God. It's not passive. It's not meditation, but it's an intentional communication. That's, that's what prayer is, intentional communication with God. One author says this, it's the primary way for the believer in Jesus to communicate their emotions and desires with God and to fellowship with God. And I, and I like that. I'll say it again. It's the primary way for the believer in Jesus to communicate their emotions and desires with God and to fellowship with God. See, prayer is not formulaic in whatever we ask for we get, but rather prayer is an opportunity. An opportunity to be honest with God, who, by the way, can handle your honesty. It's an opportunity to thank God, to honor God, to bring Him the things that weigh on us and our concerns and even our desires. But it is not formulaic in the sense, well, I have to always approach it this way. Or as long as I say these five words, God will grant me my wishes. He's not a genie. So it's not formulaic in that sense where your desire will always equal this outcome if you do the process this way. Right, so if prayer is communication with God, then it's an opportunity to bring to Him the things that at the end of the day that they just weigh on us. It's to bring them before him and to lay, him at, lay them at his feet. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, church, God gets to choose what to do with that. So then we may think, well, then why are we praying? If after all that, God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, then why bother? Well, first, we're commanded to pray. Right, the disciples asked Jesus, how do I pray? And he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So on, so on, so on. He instructs, he gives that, that guidance. So he gives a, a framework out there. Right? And, and perhaps you've been taught different format, right? the Acts format of prayer. Right? Uh, start with adoration, thanks. I know it's an A. Right? 
confession, thanksgiving, supplication, kind of work your process through that. And there's other simple acronyms that could be helpful. And those aren't wrong. They're actually, they are helpful tools. But, but prayer, first of all, I believe, is a command. Because God said, look, look, bring these things before us, before me. Right? Prayer is an expression of our dependency upon God. It's first command. And second, it's an expression of our dependency upon God. See, prayer is admitting to ourselves that we don't rule and reign supremely. That we don't create out of our words. That we don't govern the cosmos. God alone does that. Prayer is a reminder, really, of a hierarchy. That we are not the creator. We are the created. And we live with limits in life and bounds that we can't go outside of. We live under operation of God's rule. Prayer is accepting that, I think, and then responding in that. It's a command. It's instructed in the scriptures. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. See, prayer is an act of obedience. And lastly, prayer is an opportunity to to praise God to thank him, and to leave our burdens in front of him. In front of a God who sees down the tunnel of time and divinely guides these things according to his will. See, prayer for the believer, the best way to pray is actually to pray this way. And he's instructed us so. Your will be done. Right, perhaps you've heard people say that before in prayer. I can remember growing up, right, just spending my time on enough churchy people. Well, you'll see tomorrow. Lord willing. That seems weird. You could just say, okay, see you tomorrow. But that was, that was a response out here, right? Maybe you heard it too. I don't know. I feel like it was a generational thing. It was kind of era of time. Lord willing. But really what that was doing was saying, if God declares it to be good and allows it to happen, I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing, if he wills it to take place, if he allows, if he deems it good, if he says, okay, then I'll see you tomorrow. What is that? That's really another way of saying God's will be done. See, as as followers of Jesus, as we walk out prayer, again, just being honest with God, We actually should be seeking and asking the Lord, look, help my desires to line up with your will. Help my desires to conform to what you desire. Not, God, um, here's what I want. Can you get on board? Like, can you you get, look, I'm I'm ahead of you right now. Can you just catch up and kind of get on the same same path I'm on, because I've got some plans and some visions and some dreams here. Right, Proverbs says, in his heart a man plans his path, but the Lord directs his steps. Planning's a good thing. But think about that. In his heart a man plans his path, plans it, the Lord directs his steps. How, how glorious is it when the plans are on the same path that the Lord's directing? Man, that, that seems almost effortless at that point. We're just going to walk it out. This is how our prayer should be. 
that, that God would align our hearts and our motives and our thoughts that, that even if it emotionally grinds against us, if this is what God is willing, that we're going to say, okay, Lord. And I say emotionally grind against us because I think so often, man, that we allow our emotions to govern us. I do. Right? My kids will ask me something, no. I really don't have a good reason. <laughs> In that moment, my emotion just said no. <laughs> One of them particularly presses me on that pretty routinely, and he's often right. Because I don't have any justification for it. My emotion is my God. It's ridiculous at times. Not always, but at times. A conforming to God's will is through prayer. It's a good thing. This is Sermon 2.B. All right? All right. Look at Acts chapter 4. Let me give you just a quick context. Peter and John just released from being arrested after teaching Jesus, instructing in Jesus, right? They were brought in, they were arrested, not necessarily by a Roman authority, okay, more of a religious authority, brings them in. They're instructed to, to no longer teach, don't proclaim Jesus, stop this insanity. We took care of this once, we don't want to hear about it again, right? And they find themselves, themselves in a place of conviction here, See, they must submit to God and the conviction to keep Jesus. And that's where they find themselves in. 1920, I, I love this passage in chapter 4. It says this, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What do they say? Look, I love to help you out. Um, I love to listen to you. And what you want me to do is stop talking about Jesus. Um, Look, you've got to decide for yourself, I guess, whether you think that's right or wrong, but here's my conviction. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. And I, and I love the resolve they show in this, their commitment and conviction to the gospel and to Christ in this. They commit to declare Christ and, and to go on knowing full well they've just been told there could be consequences. They're going to say, okay, it's worth it. And then we come into um, chapter 4, verses 23 to 31, We'll try to go quickly through this, but I think it's important on the topic of prayer. It says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, sorry, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love this passage. Peter and John go to really what seems to be just their closest friends, like the other apostles, disciples of Jesus. They have a fantastic response. Their response, let's pray. 
That was their response. They don't pray for favorable relationships. They don't pray for everything to be found in just in perfect harmony. Rather, they pray recognizing that God is in control, right? Verse 27 told us that, that God put into place Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles. They recognize that God is in control. The individuals were in position of authority that he had planted them in. And God had desired and allowed the situations to happen that Christ might be crucified and the gospel might come to fruition. But now look at verses 29 and 30. It said again, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed for the name of your holy servant, Jesus. <laughs> their prayer was this. God, we know there are threats to stop preaching your words, but we can't do that. We know there's threats to stop declaring Jesus, but we can't, we can't do that. No, in light of those threats, God, give us boldness. Give your people boldness to do great things for the cause of Christ. Would you heal, would you perform miracles all through the name of Jesus? Not so that we would be great, but so that you would be great. And what's the result of the prayer? So the room is shaken, right? And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. See, God grants their prayer immediately. They were filled with the Spirit. There was a lasting answer to their prayer. Well, why do we think that happened? Because their prayer was lined up with God's will. Did God want his word to go forward? Yes. Does God want the gospel to continue to be preached? Yes. Their prayer was for that to continue to happen, and God answered it because it lined up in accordance with God's will. And he answered that prayer. And how can we say that confidently? Because you have the rest of the New Testament to look at and to read and see how the gospel continues to get taught, continue to move forward. The New Testament records it. And by the way, you and I are here today. Human history records that the gospel continues to move forward, that God answered their prayer in Acts 4 and has allowed that to continue to fruition today, despite numerous human efforts to twist the gospel, to change the gospel, and to put it out of existence, it still is here today. That's evidence of God answering the prayer of Acts chapter 4 by the followers of Jesus. See, church, look, prayer is powerful, and prayer, you need to hear this, is a marker for the life that's been changed by the gospel. Too often, in our minds, in my own mind too, prayer is this, is this add-on. It's this extra thing that, that maybe those people who are spiritual or like, like super Jesus people, they, they do, they pray. I believe prayer is a marker, meaning it's, it's evidence in the life of the follower of Jesus who has been changed authentically by the gospel. And so, if, if I, because I care about you, I'm going to say this. If you're saying right now, look, I'm not, I don't, I don't pray. Then you need to do some honest evaluation of where you are with the Lord. 
And that goes everywhere if we're doing right thinking. Man, okay, like, have I truly submitted to, to Christ in my life? Like, have I truly trusted the gospel? That's, I'm not asking you to question salvation. What I'm asking you to do is, if you go back and you say yes to that question, then you need to ask the Lord, God, man, work in my life. Help me to be committed to your word and, and to prayer, to, to gospel teaching and to prayer. It's, to, it's, a, it's an expectation, I think, that those things should be in the life of the believer. Like, God does have expectations on his people. Remember that whole obedience thing earlier? Like, we pray to be obedient, not perfection. God has put expectations on us. Like, you don't sign for the Red Sox and show up to play the playoffs with a Yankees uniform. There's expectations to be a Red Sox player. You, you, You show up in a Red Sox jersey. Right? Church, there, there are expectations of following Christ. Spending time with him. It's, it's not just good food for thought or, hey, it'd be nice if you could. God expects us to do that. Well, why? Because our hearts have been changed and they've been radically reshaped to see him in all his glory and beauty and to see him as more precious than anything else in life and say, this is good use of my time. And I get it. You're busy. Your schedules are full. Nobody probably wants to get up at four in the morning, except for Alan. I know you like to do that sometimes, right? Four, four thirty. But, but if that's, I don't know, you have to ask, if that's what it takes to get time to spend the Lord, then you got to do it. Or, or find the time that works. Do you remember my initial question that I asked you way back a while ago? Have you ever tried to imitate someone? Look, there is a phenomenal example here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 for the follower of Christ to imitate. We are to be devoted to gospel teaching, to the fellowship of believers, the breaking of bread and prayer. These things are timeless. They're timeless. There's no expiration date. They're not limited to the first century church. Now, look, you can read Acts 2, all right, roughly verse 45, 46, 47. All of a sudden, they're going, they talk about they're going to the temple to worship. Like, we're not going to the temple to worship, but we do gather locally. So that still translates, that crosses over, right? These are an example to us. And, and we have a greater advantage, I think, than the apostles. I've got like six Bibles in my office. There's no excuse for me. I've got the internet, well, I can't, I have my Bible with me. Get your phone. The average person touches their phone over 2,000 times in a day, which is mind-blowing. Right? So we have access. It's there. Acts 2, Acts 4, it's a phenomenal example for us to pursue and to imitate. Part of gospel community must be gospel teaching, 
gospel discipleship, and prayer, all rooted in Christ and seeking to know, to grow, and to desire Jesus and his impact in our lives right now, both for our present day and for eternity. Gospel community, gospel discipleship, gospel teaching and prayer are vital to the life of the believer. And I would urge you to not try to pursue Christ without those things. Let's pray. God, as we uh, just spend time and and just consider what it means to uh, look at your word, uh, we're uh, just, we need to wrestle, I think, individually with what it means just to to look at and follow after a life solely devoted to Christ. When a conflict might come before us and our first instinct is not, how do I find the solution in this? But God, give me wisdom. I, I work with the employee or the, the fellow employee or the boss that, that just is hard to, to get along with. That our prayer would not be, God, hey, change their life. Change their attitude, it stinks. But our heart's cry would be, God, then help me to have compassion and grace and mercy and to best exemplify Christ as I work with this individual who needs to know Jesus. That that prayer become more natural and that God's word, that we would look at it, Lord, in the richness and fullness it contains. God, help us to see you as a greatest endeavor. As your word, as holy, and as time spent with you, as, as really a true privilege as we spend it in prayer. In your name, amen. Thank you. I pray that this, uh, through God's word, divinely works in our lives. Have a great day. You are dismissed.